We shall turn now to the Word of God, and we may turn to the chapter read, the book of the Revelation, chapter 4. We shall read from the verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and so on. As I said last week, we are not to think that the messages sent to the seven churches in Asia are to be treated in isolation from the rest of the book of the Revelation. There is a very clear connection. There is a progression throughout the order in the book of Revelation. And uh, many of the things that we read from chapter 4 onwards, their significance is actually seen through our understanding of the condition that prevailed in the churches in Asia. Now, before... Proceeding into the chapter 4, let us go back a little to the promises that we were considering last Lord's Day, the seven promises that are given to the glorified head of the church, to his own people, or very particularly the promises that are given to him that overcometh. These promises are to him that overcometh. Now immediately, if we have been paying attention to the conditions of the seven churches, we become quickly aware that there are difficulties, there are problems in these churches that need to be overcome. And uh, this is no ordinary overcoming. You and I have our own understanding of what naturally overcoming means. Overcoming a difficulty, overcoming a problem. But there is more to it here. The language of John, and remember he is directed by God to write, so he's writing very carefully, to him that overcometh. It uh, is a statement with the definite article, and it is in the active mode. Now, our mood, uh, if that doesn't make any sense, don't worry. What it simply means is this. It is a particular overcoming. It's not any ordinary overcoming. This is a spiritual overcoming. This is the overcoming. The church's overcoming. The church's guaranteed overcoming. The saints, their particular overcoming. The worldling, the unregenerate, cannot enter into this. This is the overcoming of the church. In uh, chapter 12 of Revelation, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It means that what John is talking about is not something in the past they have overcome It's not something in the future they will overcome. It is something in the present they are overcoming. They are presently, actively 
overcoming the difficulties, the problems that they are faced with as members of the professing Church of Christ. Now, last week we noted the Savior himself looking over Jerusalem, weeping because of the state of the city, the inhabitants, this chosen people of God, the church of the Old Testament. Why is it necessary to overcome in the church? We have a tendency to think the child of God overcomes the world out there that's against him. We talk sometimes of overcoming the world and the flesh and the devil. But where do we overcome them? In the very bosom of the church. Because the problems that the child of God particularly faces arise in the visible church. Now, if we were to consider the teaching of the Savior himself, this should, and indeed the apostles, this should become very obvious to us. If you go, and it's a well-known portion in Matthew chapter 13, we're all familiar with the parable of the sower. He went forth to sow. And uh, we're told in Matthew chapter 13, where he's sowing the word, the word of, of the gospel. Verse 38 of Matthew 13, the field is the world. So this is the sowing of the word, the seed of the word of the gospel in the world. The apostles, they would go out into all the world, what to do? To sow the seed, to preach the word. That was their field. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now, the Savior is speaking this way to explain what he has previously said in a parable of a man sowing good seed in his field, and then while he slept, verse 25, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So there are two sowings here, two different sowers, two different sowings, and they are both being sowed in the field of the world. Now, when we go back to the earlier part of this chapter 13, we're told by the Savior, he explains the parable of the sower, and he says in verse 18, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. I will explain it to you. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, or the word of the gospel, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. He doesn't come unless the seed's been sown. He arrives in the scene because the seed is being sown. He's very attentive. It would do some of those who do not diligently attend on the preaching of the word good to sit down some time and think, well... Well, I'm sitting here at home. The devil, he's there in the congregation. I'm not there, but he's there. And he's there because the seed's been sown. He doesn't like it being sown. So, what do we read he does? Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in the heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Devil works to prevent the word getting into the heart. He doesn't want the word to have any effect. He doesn't want it to be productive. That's his concern. 
He doesn't care. A man, he's not concerned no matter how many sermons you listen to. And he's not distressed that you're attending church on the Lord's day. What he is concerned about is to prevent the word taking effect. That's his concern. And if you were a wise man or a wise woman, you would make sure you pray against him and against his devices that you would be enabled to concentrate your mind upon the truth, knowing the devil, here I am in the courts of God's house, the devil was, doesn't want this word today to do me any good. So this we've got to face up to. The devil is very active where the word is preached. And where's the word preached? In the visible church. Now, in the apostolic writings, we have hints, and more than hints, at the work of Satan within the bounds of the church. You see, he doesn't have to bother too much about the ungodly world out there because the whole world lies in his lap. He doesn't have to worry about the man who's not at church today, the man who's out in the golf course, the man who's away camping and fishing or doing whatever he wants because he's already got hold of them. He doesn't have to worry. What he's interested in is the church, the people of God, the witness and the side of truth in this world. And my, how diligently he works to corrupt the truth, to corrupt the church. You have in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 4, a very, very short, brief statement. And yet how important it is. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, look at this little brief sentence. What does it say? Neither give give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Because the devil comes along pushing and shoving his way. He wants place. Let me into the church. Give me place. I need to be in here. What does Paul say to the Ephesians? Neither give place to the devil. Keep him out. Don't let him in. Don't give him any respect. Don't show him any respect, whatever. You must resist him. You must keep him out. Why would Paul write this to the Ephesian believers? Don't give place to the devil. Because the church can do that. Make no sense for Paul to write about something that was totally irrelevant. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. Have you, my dear friend, ever given place to the devil? You say, well, how would you do that? Well... One way that you can do that is this. When he comes along and you're hearing the word of God and the poor preacher saying, Thus saith the Lord, the devil's whispering in your ear as he did to Eve, hath God said. Give him no please. Don't even give his words please. Don't listen to him. Don't allow him to introduce himself, to intrude into the ministry of the word, either in the speaking or in the hearing. Again, when Paul is writing to Timothy, and this is a, in a pastoral epistle, 
to preachers, to ministers. First Timothy chapter 3. And this has to do with office bearers in the church. You go back to the beginning of the chapter 3. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop or a shepherd, he desireth a good work. And then what does Paul say to Timothy, verse 5, If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Because that's his responsibility, to take care of God's church. What a solemn commitment. What an honorable, rewarding Uh, work to be engaged in, but how solemn. Verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. What is Paul talking about to Timothy? The irresponsibility in the actions of the visible church committing the solemn responsibilities of the care for Christ's church to inexperienced, ignorant, incapable, unruly men. Men who are mere novices or those who are in danger of being lifted up with pride. My, I have seen it. I have seen men, and you think they're reasonably ordinary until you give them office in the church. And then they become somebody very important. And they begin to assert themselves and push their weight around. And Paul is saying that's one of the ways the devil gets in. He ensnares Men and makes them more of a problem to the church than they are worth. We must recognize this. The devil seeks constantly to corrupt the church. He's always working in the message to the seven churches. His name appears. His person appears. He's working in the churches in Asia at the time of John. Now the overcoming of the saints is to overcome the world creeping into the church, and we've seen that in the seven churches. The flesh manifesting itself, and we've seen that in the seven churches. The devil Active, and we see that in the seven churches. Now, how then do we overcome? How is this particular overcoming of the sins? How do they actually overcome? Well, we have the Apostle John who writes the Revelation in his first general epistle, the same author, he wrote the gospel, he wrote Revelation, and in his first epistle in the chapter 4, we have the apostle writing to the children of God, fathers, young men, children, little children, and he is saying in verse 4 of 1 John 4, year of God, little children, And have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. How have they overcome? 
they have overcome in Christ, not because they're particularly strong in themselves, because greater is he that is in you, because greater is he that is in you, indwelling you, living in you. He is greater than all the enemies of the truth. And so you overcome because he overcomes. We looked at that last week, the encouragement that is given to the church, even as I have overcome and sit in my Father's throne. If I am in you, you can do anything less than overcome, because I'll never be defeated. I will always overcome. And if I'm indwelling you, I can't overcome and you be defeated. You overcome because I overcome. Again, in the fifth chapter of First John, you have... In verse 4, John writing, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even your faith. Those who overcome are born of God. They have a different source of life in them. They have more than natural life with its resources. They have spiritual life, the life of God in their souls. And they overcome because of that life. And they overcome, the victory that overcometh is your faith. They overcome by faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's John telling us what the source of this overcoming power is. Now then, these who are encouraged by the promises to overcome, they're not going to find it easy. It's going to be a real battle. Warring against the world, intruding into the church, warring against the flesh, manifesting itself in the behavior, in the attitudes, and the conduct of men, women in the church, overcoming the devil with his power to destroy. Whenever Peter writes, his second epistle, he addresses the elders in Second Peter, uh, or chapter 5 of First Peter, I should say just now. First Peter chapter 5. Here's what Peter exhorts the elders in the church and believers under their shepherding this is what he tells them to do. Verse, four, verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He hasn't gone on holiday since the time of Job. We was walking about through the earth and he was taking note of Job. And here's what Peter says, you elders beware of it. The devil's after you. You who are under their oversight, you beware because he's after you. Be sober. You better take this matter seriously. Be vigilant. You better be watchful. Because what's going to happen if you're not? He's going to get in. You can be sure of it. Because your adversary, the devil, 
as a roaring lion. He's out looking for prey. And when he gets hold of that prey, what's he going to do? Is he going to play around with it? Not at all. He's going to rend it. He's going to tear it to pieces, seeking whom he may devour. He's going to make a right mess of whoever he gets hold of. How many of us do take these things seriously? How many of us begin the day with any awareness, the devil's after me today. He'll be following me into the office. He'll be following me around in my business. And if he can get me ensnared and entrapped, he will do it. Why will he do that? Because he wants to harm the witness. And he wants to harm the cause of Christ. He wants to bring shame and reproach upon it. But those to whom the promises are given are assured they will overcome in Christ. Now then, when we come to chapter 4, Having considered the messages relating to us, the condition of the churches, what they need to overcome, we come to chapter 4, seeking now to enter into a new sphere as it were altogether. We've been among the seven churches in Asia. The seven churches In this world, we've been on earth. We've been moving amongst men. We've been moving amongst the heretics and the heresies and the false teaching and the corruption. We've been moving among the seven churches, real churches, consisting of real people, real spiritual problems. Now we come to consider something truly glorious. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. A door was opened in heaven. What was the meaning of the opening of this door? To allow John to see, to penetrate into heaven. He has already been made aware of what's happening on earth, the seven churches. You ask John, well, can you tell us about the state of the church in Smyrna? Oh, yes. What about Philadelphia? Yes, I can describe that to you. John, how do you feel about it? Well, I have to say I'm very concerned. I'm an old man now. I've seen much in the life of the church. I started off as a young disciple of Jesus Christ. And I was very near to him And I learned much from him, but now I'm an old man. And I've been observing the progress and the lack of it in the church. How, John, do you feel about the future? And I see John bowed with old age on the Isle of Patmos. This was just a rocky island where... Criminals were sent, they were put there by the Roman powers. And John is there and he tells us the reason, because of persecution. He was at the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's suffering, but he's not alone. How does he describe himself? Verse 9 of John of Revelation 1 I, John, who also 
am your brother and companion in tribulation. We are suffering together. Some of you are still attending the means of grace in the various churches. I cannot do that. But we're all suffering together because, you see, it was a time of persecution. Now, the persecution came from two sources. We're all familiar, you see, with the Roman persecution against Christians, the periods of Roman opposition and persecution against the Christian church. But equally, the church was being persecuted by unregenerate Jews of the time. And you see this here coming out in the letters to the seven churches, how that... uh, Jesus says of those who called themselves Jews, but they were not Jews, persecuting your suffering at the hands of these. And after 70 AD, particularly, there was a great separation, schism between the Christians and the Judaizers. You go through the Acts of the Apostles and you see how again and again everywhere Paul went to preach the gospel, the Judaizers arrived in the scene to make it difficult. And they were seeking to undermine Paul's ministry. Now, it might be helpful because we've, we've looked at what is written to the seven churches. This was a prayer that was offered Sabbath by Sabbath in the Jewish synagogues. And it in itself conveys to us something of the fierceness of the opposition against the Christians at the time of John's writing. It was called the benediction. And it goes like this. For... The renegades, let there be no hope. And may the arrogant kingdom soon be rooted out in our days. And the Nazarenes and the Minim, that was the word for heretics, perish as in a moment and be blotted out from the book of life. What did Jesus say? I will not blot thy name out. See, these things were written for a reason. Out of the book of life. And with the righteous, may they not be inscribed. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. Now that was prayed Sabbath by Sabbath in the Jewish synagogues because they detested Christ and all his followers. And they they, uh, constantly persecuted throughout the Acts. You see evidence, in fact, in the Acts of, (coughs) of the Apostles, you will see that Paul himself, when he's testifying on one occasion actually uh, tells us uh, that uh, he belonged to chapter 24 of Acts. This is what we read in verse 5. For we have found this man, that is Paul, a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see, the Christians were considered by the Judaizers, by the Jews, as a sect, and they followed the Nazarene. They were the Nazarenes. And... You will 
see that Paul himself uh, refers to these as not just uh, a sect, but he, he says that they were uh, heretics. He himself was accused of it in this very chapter. They were the Nazarenes, the heretics that were being prayed against every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, the opposition then from the Romans became more fierce because since the days of Julius Caesar, the Jews were allowed freedom of worship. They didn't have to worship Caesar. They didn't have to worship the Roman gods. They were free to worship Jehovah and they were permitted, uh, uh, every generation was permitted to worship God according to their conscience as their fathers had done. Now the problem arises, what about these Nazarenes? These heretics, they are now disowned. You see, to begin with, the early Christians still attended the synagogues until they were put out of them or excommunicated. The opposition then in the days of John, and the reason John's in the Isle of Patmos and he's a brother in tribulation with the other Saints throughout these seven churches is because the Romans did not allow any other worship except the Jewish worship. If you were not a Jew, if you didn't worship Jehovah, if you didn't worship in the synagogue and the temple, if you were not under the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership, then you were required to worship Caesar. Now here are the Christians, and they're not allowed to go to the synagogue. They're excommunicated. They are called the, the, the sect, the heretics. The Nazarenes. So the Romans then expect these Christians to worship Caesar, to fall in line with the Romans. So here they are, and they are squashed between the two. They don't belong to either. And that's why so many of the early Christians were thrown to the lions. That's why so many of them were slaughtered because the Jews betrayed them again and again to the Roman authorities. They don't belong to us. We disown them. They are heretics. They are not sound. They are not the children of Abraham. So the Romans say, right, if you don't belong to them, you have to worship Caesar. Well, we can't do that. So you see the terrible situation they are in. And here's John, the Isle of Patmos. The Lord's Day reminds him of the resurrection. Reminds him of his Lord who was crucified, who's risen again, who's now gone to glory who on the day of Pentecost has poured out his spirit on the church. And he has watched it grow and he has watched it develop. But now they are suffering in a way they never expected. And the future seems very uncertain. John, how do you think these churches are going to survive? What's going to happen when they've introduced erroneous doctrine? What's going to happen if the persecution carries on and the saints 
are eradicated from the church, here and there. What's going to happen then, John? You can imagine that saintly old Apostle John. I don't know. The changes I've witnessed in my ministry, I don't know. It's all in God's hands. And then, here's what happens. After this, I looked. It's as though John is looking for something to encourage him. Some token that will encourage him for the future in spite of all that he knows about the churches. I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. Go back to the first chapter. What do we read there? The same voice is what he heard. Verse 10 of chapter 1, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet. We looked at that earlier, the significance of that. And here is the trumpet summoning John into the presence of God in heaven. What does the voice say? talking with me, and said, Come up hither. What an amazing invitation. John, look around you at the rocks. Listen to the crashing of the waves in your isolation and loneliness. As you look out across the sea and long that you might be amongst the saints, John, come away from that. Come up and leave it behind for a little. Come up hither. What a wonderful invitation. What a blessed application it has. You and I mightn't have the same experiences as John. We mightn't suffer physically as he was doing. But how good and profitable it would be for us on occasions. When we're in the midst of our troubles and our trials and our problems and difficulties, If we would just hear that voice, come away from that all for a little. Come up hither. Come higher. Leave that behind for a while. Come up into the heavenly realm. See what's going on there. You're aware of what's going on below. But come up now and see what's happening above. That's what John was told. John Lee... Leave it all behind for a little. Your sorrow, your grief, your concerns, your burden. Come up higher, John. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Come up, John, and I will show you wonderful things. You've seen what's going on in the churches. Now I'm going to show you things that must be. They are as certain, John, as can be. I will show them to you. You will not live, John, to see them, but I will show them to you so that you can write them and pass them on to the church and for the, to the generations in future. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat in the throne. The very first thing he sees is an occupied throne. 
It was the throne of Rome that put him in Patmos. It is the throne of Rome and the throne of the Sanhedrin that is the source of the persecution and the grief and the sorrow of the church and the saints. But here's John told, come up hither. I will show you something else. And the first thing he sees, behold, a throne. A throne was set in heaven. And one sat in the throne. It wasn't an empty throne. It was an occupied throne. It is in heaven. It's not in earth. It's a heavenly throne in contrast to earthly thrones. The thrones on earth were executing their authority and exercising their power. But here is another throne, John. Take a look at this throne. Consider this throne, John. And what does he say? John does not try to describe the occupant. He that sat on the throne was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight, like unto an emerald, and so on. Now here is where the mystery begins for many. What are we to make of this? How are we to understand these things? Well, the first thing that we ought to keep in mind is this. The book of the Revelation is a revelation. It is a revelation. It's not meant to be a mystery. It's a revelation. And it is God's revelation. And it is the revelation of Christ. Let us remind ourselves of what we said at the beginning. In verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if we are reading as we should, the book of the Revelation, when we come to the end of it, if we don't know more about Christ than we did when we began, well, we feel entirely to understand it. You'll hear men, they become very wealthy and famous because they're great at expounding prophecy. And people will come in droves to hear them talking about what Revelation says about America, what Revelation says about Russia, what it says about the Chinese, what it says about Donald Trump, what it says about Hitler, whatever else. And it doesn't seem to matter to them. It's all about Christ. And it is him who is central to everything that is taught in this book. And the throne is associated with him as we shall see. But this book is full of symbols. It's full of symbols. And that's where a lot of the difficulties arise. What do the symbols mean? Now, one thing for sure. We cannot and must not rely upon symbols as teaching doctrine. Symbols are symbols. We must rely upon the clear teaching of Scripture for doctrine. We understand the symbols by the clear teaching. And the book of the Revelation is full of symbols. And we must, therefore, understand that and keep that in mind. And when we come, we have to 
work out what, what is this a symbol of? Or who is this a symbol of? What does this particular symbol convey? What's the message it's conveying? And that can only be understood in the clearer teaching of Scripture. The Bible, it's not just revelation. The Bible is full of symbols. Uh, It's one of the (coughs) things that uh, I think sometimes we overlook. We don't pay enough attention to them in the light of the teaching of Scripture. Now, the question then that we have to ask is this. Why is this book written? Why is John directed to write it? To whom is it written? What's its purpose? We've already noted the kind of persecution that existed at the time. And therefore, this book is written to the churches to encourage them, to encourage those who are the Lord's people to overcome. And how great is the encouragement when they see there is a throne. Whatever's happening to us, whatever our lot, there is a throne in heaven. And that throne is occupied and there is authority and there is government at that throne and issuing from that throne. Now, that's the purpose, not just for the seven churches, but he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto all the churches. A third matter that we should keep in mind is this. If we are to understand the book of the Revelation. You go with me over to the uh, epistle of John himself. The epistle of John, chapter uh, 16. And there we have the Savior making a blessed promise to his disciples. No doubt John would never forget this. It would always be with him when he's writing Revelation, when he's (coughs) taken in the Spirit into heaven, what's he remembering? What Jesus said in John 16, verse 12, Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you. My ministry is almost ended. I'll soon be crucified. I have taught you, I have instructed you, but I have many things that you need to know things to say unto you that you cannot bear them now. You see, there were things the Savior could only teach his disciples after he was resurrected. They couldn't understand them before the resurrection. I have things to say, and I'm going to say them. You have things to learn, and you will learn them. But you're not ready yet. Now, Verse 13, how be it, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall speak of, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and what? He will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. What is John called up to heaven for? Come up hither, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. The Holy Spirit was at work opening up the things that were to happen. To John's understanding, he shall glorify me. He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. 
That's what we have in Revelation. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And the Spirit is leading John into an understanding of the things that were to come, the things that Christ was yet to say, the things that he couldn't say before the resurrection, the things that he couldn't say before his ascension, but the things that he says through the agency of his Holy Spirit to the apostles, and very particularly John here. Now, another point that we need to make is this, the importance of the unity of the Scriptures. There is no contradiction anywhere from Genesis to Revelation between the teaching of the Old Testament and the New, or between the prophets and the apostles. There is this unity, this continuity between the teachings, so that, in a sense, we have what we might refer to as progressive revelation. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners speak in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, now he has spoken unto us by his Son. And there is the progression. Now, what is John seeing here? He's seeing something that men don't normally see. He is brought into a presence that men normally are not admitted into. And he is describing to us what he hears and what he sees. He doesn't try to explain it all. He simply tells us what he sees and what he hears. Now you might say, is that not a bit unfair? Why doesn't he explain it to us? Wouldn't it be easier for us? We have to understand, you see, that John had grown up under the teaching of the Savior, but attending the synagogue, reading the law, taught from his childhood the law and the prophets, and so on. Where's John now? He's in the spirit in the heavenly realm. He's at the throne upon which the humiliated Son of God in our nature is now exalted and seated. Now in the epistle that Paul writes to the Hebrews, you go with me to chapter 9 of Hebrews, and there we have the contrast stated between the earthly and the heavenly. Verse 1 of Hebrews 9 Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. A worldly sanctuary. A material sanctuary. A a sanctuary uh, in this world. We have the tabernacle. We have the temple, the sanctuary, the earthly and worldly Sanctuary, verse 2, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, keep that in mind, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Now you will understand that in the ancient tabernacle, there was the outer court, then there was the holy place, then there was the holy of holies. And only the high priest could go behind the veil once a year on the day of atonement into the holy of holies. Now what was all that about? Certainly the Hebrew people 
learned how to worship God, bringing sacrifices, trusting the priesthood, and so on. But what was that all about? Verse 4, it had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, when these things were ordained of God, and when Moses gave the instructions to erect the tabernacle and appoint the priesthood and get men to construct the altar and the tables and all the instruments connected with the sacrificial system, what was it about? Verse 8, for the sake of time, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. To sum it up, what the apostle is saying, this earthly tabernacle, and then the temple, it was but typical. It was typifying reality. And the reality is in heaven. Now, just for the sake of time, just look at verse 5 here, uh, Hebrews 9. Over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. You know that in the Holy of Holies was the mercy seat, the tables of the law. Over it were the cherubims, as it were, looking down in the law. And they would look down in the blood when it was sprinkled over the law once a year. Might be interesting just in passing. It's a bit of a digression, but perhaps a useful one. Some people have got very strange, peculiar interpretations of Scripture. And they think they know God's law quite well. And they will quote the commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them and so on. That bit's left out. Our people say, we don't want any carved work in our church building. We're not going to allow this and that and the other. And they imagine to themselves, we're obeying the commandment of God. Does God contradict himself? Where do these cherubims come from? What were the cherubims? They were of a heavenly divine order of beings. They were deeply holy beings. And yet God directed Moses to make images of them. But they did not bow down to them. When you go to the temple, what about the great the great uh, sea that the priests were to wash at. What was it resting on? Oxen. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images, 
of things in heaven or things in the earth. David, what are you doing? Solomon, what are you at? Why do we take the word of God and break it up to suit ourselves and our own opinions and then try to impose on others laws and commandments that God hasn't ordained? You see in the hangings of the tabernacle and in the temple, you see the images of things in heaven and the images of things in earth. They were not objects of worship. They dare not be. But they were at the command of God. We need to learn I believe in our generation more respect for God's word and to be more careful how we interpret it. Over it, the cherubims. And if you want a description of the cherubims, go to the 10th chapter of Ezekiel. They had six wings and they only needed two. They had six wings with twain, they cover their faces. With twain, they cover their feet. And with twain, they fly. Why did they need the other four wings? To cover their faces in reverence before God. To cover their feet in humility before God. And these were the images, the heavenly images, that were constantly before the Israelites, constantly in their minds, teaching them symbols that were teaching them that were teaching them to understand what the law was saying. Now, time has gone and we've digressed a little, but sometimes it doesn't do any harm to digress because we can become very, very established in notions that we can't defend from Scripture. And we've got to be careful when we're handling God's Word. Anyway, we shall have to leave it there and come back to the throne, the glorious throne. It would be good, maybe even this very day. Come up, come up hither. Come up hither. Come up into the heavenly realm. See the throne that's ruling over it all. See that God's in control. That's what John was to see. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, do thy blesses with understanding of thy truth. Enable us to lay it to heart, and may we have that grace that is necessary to overcome. We are living in dark days, days of fearful compromise and corruption in the professing church and in the world and society. O oh, grant us grace to put on the whole armor of God that we might stand in an evil day and having done all to stand. Bless us, receive us, and pardon us. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.